Colin Steen is CEO of Legacy AgriPartners. He has had a lifelong career in agriculture, spending over 25 years with Syngenta in a variety of commercial leadership and venture capital roles before joining Legacy Seed Companies, now Legacy AgriPartners, in July 2020. His prior experience in running Golden Harvest Seeds has given him a deep understanding of the needs of the U.S. farmer. Colin grew up on a grain and cattle farm in Weldon, Saskatchewan, and holds a BS in agriculture from the University of Saskatchewan and an MBA from the University of Guelph. Colin Steen, welcome to One Planet Podcast and Business and Society. Thanks for having me, Mia. So you went from being head of venture capital at Syngenta to being a CEO of Legacy Partners. What was that transition like? And also you grew up on a farm, so you know the business from all sides. Yeah, thank you. It certainly was to go from a multinational global leader in ag like Syngenta, an amazing company, right, that's... 30,000 employees worldwide to a company with 45 employees based in central Wisconsin was definitely quite a change. I think the role at Syngenta's venture capital group and leading that team and working with startups and entrepreneurs really helped me for this smaller company mindset. So a lot of the work in the last two years of my career at Syngenta was focused on sitting on boards and helping small companies deal with the culture problems, deal with all the things that come with being a startup, right? Cash burn processes didn't work out. The timelines to market were longer than we thought. The sales weren't as we thought, or there's more sales than we thought. Now, what do we do? We don't have the working capital to manage. So all of that stuff helped prepare me to be the CEO at Legacy AgriPartners of a smaller firm. You know, as they say, though, as much as you think you're ready, you're never quite ready. The first year was tough. We had some cash flow problems. We had a lot of debt on our balance sheet, which I obviously knew of coming in but wasn't, you know, maybe fully prepared for just the extent to the hole that we were in and the need to get more equity into the company fairly quickly. So it was a great learning experience. Yes. And I'd love to hear also about what it does growing up on a farm. I mean, that's firsthand knowledge. You know, it's interesting as I've gotten older, I've really started to reflect back on that early time growing up on a farm. And I'm fiercely, fiercely proud of where my roots are and Weldon, Saskatchewan, it's a town of, you know, it's 160 people there today, right? So we were just back uh, in Saskatchewan here at the end of August and just being in a spot where every day you have cattle to feed, you've got a grain crop you're trying to grow, right? The things are subject to weather, the sort of the ups and downs of farm life is so dependent on the 6 p.m. news and the weather forecast each night. It very, at times, stressful. Uh, but most times incredibly rewarding, right? There's nothing like sitting in a combine at harvest time with all the fruits of your labors all coming in at the same time. It's a great experience. We had cattle, which is just a never-ending thing, right? Our vacations were tied around going to cattle shows, cattle sales, bull sales, cow sales, anything that revolved around the farm. And we had a ton of fun on our vacations and going to these events and and seeing sites in those areas where we went to. But at the end of the day, you know, your life revolves around the cattle on the farm. It revolves around the farm, right? There's no sort of, hey, we'll take four months off and not worry about it, right? Those cows have to be fed twice a day and looked after. So it's a lot of responsibility and it's a great way to get yourself ready for life as an adult, for sure. Then you went to formally study agriculture in college after leaving the family cattle farm. Could you give us a sense of 
how the steps worked in the 25 years towards CEO. And the reason I asked that, Colin, is I remember when I used to teach MBAs, everyone aspired to become a CEO, but it so rarely happened to the students of business. And then eventually we'll get into the leadership attributes that we see the way you navigate both business and society. So could you tell us a little bit about the steps in those 25 years? Yeah. So as you said, initially went to the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon to study agriculture. And I was 17 turning 18 starting school. I knew I wanted to be involved in agriculture. I was probably 50-50 whether I was going to go back and farm with my family or start a career in ag. You know, coming out of school, out of college, I was probably a little bit, maybe slightly risk averse, you could say, on going back to the farm. I knew I'd have to buy a bunch more farmland and probably get a bunch more cows and really double down on everything so both my father and I could make an adequate living off the farm. And that sort of made me a little bit nervous. So I took advantage of some opportunities that I had at Syngenta back in 1995 to be a sales rep. And I would say the journey was just very typical at that time. A lot of us got out of school and the first thing we did is took a sales job with one of these major ag companies. And that's how really the, I think the first step on the change was in 1998, I applied to go to school for my MBA and there was an ad in this ag magazine saying it's like 911 for your future. And it was an advertisement for the MBA program. And for whatever reason, it really hit me. There, there is a bunch of my friends that were incredibly talented people. And I'm th- sitting there thinking to myself, how am I going to separate myself from this pack a little bit further? And so then I thought, okay, well, the MBA is going to give me something that separates me because I'll, I'll get experiences and knowledge and education that will continue to maybe widen the gap between what is a group of really talented coworkers. And, and so I did my, my MBA. That then gave me an opportunity. One of the first big moves was to move to the U.S. in 03, where, you know, leaving all your family and friends behind. We have no family. We knew no one on the southern side of the border, right? So it was, you know, it was moving to Nebraska, knowing that you're going to kind of put into, into motion a set of events of quick moves or promotions that allows you to scale the corporate ladder. Do you have children at that point, Colin? We did not. All right. So it was just my wife and I. So that was nice, right? Like it gave us a chance to double down on knowing each other better, right? You, when you don't know anybody else, you have nobody else to spend time with, but each other. So that was great. And then it was at that point where I started to see, okay, maybe I could do this, right? Maybe I can be a commercial unit leader within the company. And so started putting that out there as a, as a target of mine within my career goals of saying, I, I want to be a commercial unit leader, which is essentially, you know, one of the top 250 or 300 leaders in a, you know, in a company of 25,000 to 30,000, right? So you, you want to put yourself in that top 1% of leaders. That's when I got a chance to kind of uh, move out to Boston, get further my, my experience and start as a, an investment manager in the VC fund out there with Syngenta. And after two and a half years, that's, I got a call to move to Minnesota to, to be a commercial unit head, heading up the seed, the retail seed business for the U.S. To abstract a little bit, it seems to me that the CEOs that I've met who can understand how to navigate both business and social needs, like a legacy seed, are people who have triple competencies. They need some technical scientific competence, like you got in ag school, but they also need some business savvy or financial acumen. And then the great mystery is how do these people become able to lead teams of people? So as we tell your story, 
it sounds like you started in the ag technical side, but you had the ambition to be one of the top 1% and that the route that came open to you was the second kind of competence, financial investment company. Is that what at the MBA level you were studying investment in finance or you? No. So mostly agribusiness, like Bruce, I agree completely with that sort of triple competency approach. I also had a fourth competency for a while, which was luck. Like any career, right? If you talk to any executive, anybody in their on a 25, 30 year career, there's a moment or two where it's like, well, the right person quit at the right moment in time when I was looking for my next move and maybe it would not have normally happened, but all of a sudden they take a chance and next thing you know, you're off and running. So that was the move out to Boston, just right around the time I was looking for another opportunity within the company and they were looking for something for me. The Syngenta invested this hundred million dollars in the fund out in Boston at Life Science, LSP BioVentures. And that really just dropped on my lap as a, a heck of an opportunity. And all of a sudden your network broadens, your exposure to smart people broadens. You start meeting folks from outside the company at startups and other VC funds and the whole world just opened up. And so, you know, that experience was really important when I think to get that opportunity to come back into the main business and lead a commercial unit in 2009. And so then from 09 to 2018, led two different commercial business units of increasing size and importance. But at that point in time, I probably got a little complacent if I had to reflect back. I sort of felt like, okay, this is a good spot for me. There was lots of challenges in the business. And so as a result, I've probably stopped dreaming about what might come next. Right. And then one of my mentors at the company pressed me, he's like, look, if you want to make a run for this thing and, and try to get into the C-suite or one of these regional director jobs, the top 0.1%, right? He's like, you better get moving now or decide what it is you want to do. And then the opportunity to rejoin the venture capital team uh, appeared and eventually lead that team a few months later. And that was for me really another good set of circumstances and allowed me to broaden my network out again and sort of relit the fire to be a CEO that I've had for a while and relit the fire to, you know, what I could do. Syngenta is a big company and the leaders are incredibly talented. And I always go to a sports analogy. I know you like these, Bruce, you know, I was playing double A AA or triple A baseball in the roles I was in at Syngenta, but the chances of me making the majors was going to be tough. You know, the lineup above me was pretty strong and pretty solid. And I wasn't at that point, our kids were younger and, you know, not really willing to go uproot everybody and move to wherever we needed to move to in order to make all that happen. Um, and so, you know, when the opportunity came in March of 2020 to join Legacy Agri Partners, it just seemed really natural. It could stay in Minneapolis, be the CEO of a company. In my mind, I could start to do this job really well for a few years, grow, acquire, and then either continue to be part of Legacy Agri Partners of a growing, really significantly important business here in the Midwest of the U.S., or, you know, find the next challenge and find the next opportunity that comes along and see where this goes. But I've certainly got a lot of confidence now in my ability to lead a group and, you know, those skills that I've had over the years at Syngenta, I bring into play all the time here in terms of leadership development and team development and hiring the right people and, you know, and then just the emotional intelligence of being good to your customers, right? Right. Good point. I want to kind of back out a little bit of a sports analog. So my wife and I are on vacation in California. We're having a good time, Colin, and I'm tired. So I turn on Netflix and there's this wonderful bio sketch of Nolan Ryan, the pitcher who remained yep. competitive. I watched this one. Yep. 45. And yep. I was actually thinking of you on that scene where he's a young man, fourth string, 
but all the other pitchers are tired or hurt at the New York Mets. And so he actually pitches them into the World Series, right? He's in yep. the biggest telescope of the media in New York City. And as a fourth string pitcher, he has them win the World Series. But then he comes back to his nature and his wife and he deal with the coaches and say, you know, he doesn't really like New York City. He's always been a cattle ranch man and he doesn't really want to work in New York yeah. City. So after winning the World Series, he goes back to smaller baseball teams that he can become a real pitcher. And then after something like 3,000 strikeouts and a couple of no hitters and becoming a legend, there's that scene where he hits a batter and the batter comes running at him to tackle him and he holds the man in his neck and the young boy is sort of humbled in front of 5,000 people because he can't get at Nolan Ryan, the famous pitcher at this point. And they, the sportscasters say, hey, Nolan, what were you thinking? And he said, I handled a bunch of cattle before in my life. You know, he just would hold the animal by its head. And so I think if you told some stories about how you got to that 1% and that 0.1% relative to that Nolan Ryan thing, because sometimes a CEO has to throw a wild pitch. Sometimes a CEO has to handle the wild cattle in the team. I think that if we could get to that by the end of this interview, it might be very interesting. But first, tell the audience what you actually now do at Legacy Seed. I understand that it's unique in that it's comprised of three separate independent companies. You're really tackling a difficult assignment here, even though you already gave us a sense of how you used to deal with the hundred million at Syngenta. Three different types of companies. That's a, a lot of variables. Yeah. So we're a holding company with three distinct companies as part of that holding company. So we've got Legacy Seeds in Wisconsin that's got its roots uh, breeding alfalfa. Alfalfa is an incredibly important global crop for cattle feed, for dairy feed. And so it's a perennial that you plant and it grows in the soil for four years. It fixes its own nitrogen. So it's a great crop for sustainability purposes in U.S. agriculture and global agriculture. So we have a breeding program in that. We've got DF Seeds in Michigan, which has been around since the early 60s and a lot of history there. And it focuses mostly on, on genetically modified soybeans that are food grade. So they have a clear hilum. They have a clear seed coat. They are exported to Asia. So for tofu and for soy milk and things like that. So that core of that business so is a little more food focused. So that team is very focused on the export customer and making sure the farmers have a good relationship with us and with their contractors to go overseas. And then we just acquired a third business, Tri-Cal Superior Forage, and this is a triticale breeding business. And triticale is a cross of wheat and ryegrass. It's been around for 40 years, 50 years. It's been around for a long, long time, but we have one of the only breeding programs globally in that crop. And again, a great story from a sustainability standpoint, it's a cover crop. You plant it in the fall after your corn has been harvested. And then it gets established to about this high off the ground. And then it goes dormant as it heads into the winter. And then it grows up in the spring. And in some parts of the U.S., they turn their cattle out to graze on that crop. Other parts, they, they chop it for forage and put it in a, in a pile for feeding throughout the year. So we've got two businesses very much focused on feed, a third business very much focused on the food aspects of the supply chain. And then overarching all that is sort of this underlying focus for us on sustainability and regenerative ag that's really important and talked about this before 
to others. You know, we don't stamp it on top of our shirts about sustainability because farmers are very proud about the fact that they're farming sustainable right now, right? They want to be able to pass this farm down from generation to generation. And if they don't do it sustainably, there's nothing left for the subsequent generations to farm. And so what we talk a lot about is just the act of putting a cover crop, a living root in the soil year round, regenerative ag is being important for, this is what our consumer customers want. They want to buy their milk from dairy cows that have been fed crops that have been grown sustainably, right? And if we can tell this story really well, it's really important. So we're working a lot with a couple different firms in DC to help get our message across to some of the folks in Washington about what we're doing, what the crops do for the benefit of farmers. And it's a very nice, diverse set of businesses. We're owned by a private equity fund in Dallas, Texas. So that makes us a little bit unique, but we're still fiercely independent. We pride ourselves on being independent to the needs of the farmer. You know, at the end of the day, the farmer is our North Star, right? Like the consumer, yes, that's incredibly important. And they're what they want and desire is going to be really key. But if we can help the farmer be more profitable, if we can help them have a better profit per acre, a better yield, then we've done our job. So we often start our decision process off by saying, okay, what's important to the farmer? What If the farmer's your North Star, you're not going to go too far wrong in this business. Yeah, that's so important because a lot of people feel regenerative agriculture, oh, that's a old-fashioned way of farming, or it's too complicated, it's not sustainable. But I think what water and soil experts have told us that we actually have no choice. Like we're losing 0.3% of fertility in the soil every year. It doesn't sound like a lot, but that's 30% over 100 years. Yeah, I agree completely, Mia. And I think one of the things that we're trying to do is just, again, I think some firms come out and they go to the farm and say, you have to change all these things right now if you're going to Cut out your fertilizers, cut out your pesticides, stop tilling your land. And the farmers, you know, head explodes, right? They're like, I can't change all that. I, I still have to feed my family, right? I still have to make a living on this thing. So we kind of focus on the smaller incremental changes and, you know, planting a crop like alfalfa that's in the soil for four or five years and bring some stability to the ground and, and fixes nitrogen back into the soil is really important. Right. So that's a huge benefit for the farm. You know, farming with cover crops, again, a living root in the soil year round is really important to keep the soil structure together and stop that erosion. And then it works better into no-till situations. So I think we're going to get there just right now. I think sometimes you like swing that pendulum too far to one direction and then you lose all the people you hope to bring along the way. And that's where when I was at Syngenta and the venture capital group, I always felt like I could help be that voice of the farmer. Now the group I'm with, right, we're all farm kids. We're all people that know what it's like and know how to talk to these, these important people in our, in our ecosystem here. And so, you know, I think we've got a chance to really make it work because we understand the language they're speaking and, and have solutions that are important for them. And at the end of the day, they have to make money, right? I think we sometimes forget, like no different than all of us, we have to feed our families. We have to do work that is important, but also if we're busking on the side of the road to feed our family, then we're probably, it's going to be tough. Well, what I heard, Colin, is when you said that the farmer knows and is the North Star and that you can't beat the theme of sustainability onto their forehead because they think of themselves as concerned about the future. I think what I heard you say is the wisdom of like a major sequence decision 
where you offer them financial support, you offer them insight into how to improve their margin of profit and yield, but you don't hit them over the head with rhetoric over action. So that's one of the things I'm learning from your style of leadership. You understand the facts, you understand the condition of how to make the money, and then you offer a solution. But tell us why legacy. Yeah, great question. And not, not to be braggadocious or whatever, but you know, when you're been in a multinational company for 25 years and rose through the leadership ranks, you do get calls from a variety of firms about opportunities and CEO opportunities or other chances. And when they first called, I don't know if I have much desire to run just a corn and soybean seed company that isn't really differentiated, doesn't have much of a different story than the rest of the companies out there. And right away, I knew some of the investors there that were around this firm and I had a lot of respect for the investors at the firm at Legacy, but they were almost immediately, they said, look, here's the materials, read through them. You'll quickly realize that we're not just the regular seed company, right? We have this focus on feed solutions, focus on food solutions. We have a focus on sustainability. You know, the ag seed ecosystem in North America is dominated by three players. Three, three companies make up 80% of the market share, Bayer, Corteva, and Syngenta. So if you're going to decide to, to go run a company that competes directly against those three each and every day, it's going to be tough, right? They've got hundreds of millions of dollars of marketing budgets, and we've got 600,000, right? We're, we're doing sponsored Facebook ads to get, get noticed and they're running TV ads, right? So it's tough. And. So when I started to see the potential of this company that was operating in what I would call big niches, that we could tiptoe around the feet of the giants a little bit and be successful. Um, you know, the seed business in the U.S. is a $40 billion business. So that means there's still $8 billion up for grabs outside of those big three companies. So if I think about Bill Novelli's book, Good Business, right, there's lots of business doing things the right way. Uh, towing around the feet of the giants here. So that's how I got to the legacy decision to join legacy Agri partners. So I hear that echoing the whole theme, technical competence, the business savvy and the communication skills to play in the land of giants, but still offer a solution, a legacy seed. Going back to the technological innovations and regenerative agriculture, of course, it's very labor intensive. Is AI, are there some technological advances even synthetic biology that helps bridge that gap to make it easier for farmers to farm sustainably. Yeah, it's coming fast. One of the things I'm involved with another company called Earth Optics. I sit as an independent board member there. And one of the things they've been able to do is use ground penetrating radar to detect carbon in the soil. And so that, that wasn't even around five years ago, right? So now we've got also this technology that a farmer can go over the ground without disturbing the soil and determine how much carbon's in there. And then two or three years later, come back and see how much progress has been made in terms of organic matter that's been built up and how much carbon has been sequestered. So that's part machine learning because it's a little bit like an MRI, right? You're not mapping every square inch of the field. So it's filling in the gaps with what it knows and what it can tell in the field. So it's interesting that way on the synthetic biology front, it's been a ton of work done around trying to engineer some bacterias and so on that, that start to reduce our need for, for use of, you know, synthetic fertilizers, right? So there's a great company called Pivot Bio that they've engineered this bacteria, this microbe that, you know, you apply to the seed and then to the soil and it 
you know, produces and fixes its own nitrogen, right? So it creates a colony of nitrogen around the plant and it feeds the plant throughout the season. And, and so allows the farmer to reduce their nitrogen needs by 20 or 25%. So the innovation is coming fairly fast now. You know, agriculture has always been sort of, you have human health kind of gets the perfection, you know, all the attention from a biology standpoint first, and then we sort of get the, the table scraps that fall off the edges and it's no different today. And it's no different on the technical side as well. The ability to, you know, the machine learning and the AI and the, the digital tools that farmers have at their fingertips now to help better predict what the outcomes will be each season. Yes. And a lot of people don't really realize that a handful of soil has more organisms than all the humans on the planet. Yeah. It's it, like a teaspoon of soil has got literally hundreds of thousands of organisms to sequence. And so there's just no end to the work that needs to be done and can be done. And if you listen to folks like Dave Freeberg, who are founded companies that are working in this space, the possibilities are endless. And as the price of sequencing has come down, you know, we can start to learn more about the soil and more about what's in it. And of course, as you know, it's not just soil health. It's so linked to human health. And we've seen this huge rise in terms of uh, diseases of inflammation and cancer. And they feel there is this correlation with the soil health and soil infertility. Yes. Yes. Certainly, I've done some reading on the gut and the soil biome. And it, there's no doubt. I think we're just still learning right now on the impact of what's happening in the soil microbiome what that affects the food that we eat and how that affects our microbiome, right? And I'm fascinated when I think about how the gut is almost the second brain versus all the stuff that's happening in your stomach with the microbiome and the flora and fauna in your stomach is amazing. And the more we've learned about that, we're, we're learning those same lessons in the soil and it's going to affect how we can get the most out of our plants and natural controls of diseases. There's a company in North Carolina called AgBio and that's doing an amazing job of sequencing microbes and trying to find naturally occurring fungicides and insecticides out there and that are in the soil and, and then figuring out how to produce them in a more wide way to naturally control some of the pests that are problems for farmers. So Jay Family Yeti, who is the head of the Global Water Security Institute and former global water expert at NASA, said in terms of water scarcity, we're not yet at the point of telling farmers what crops they'll have to plant because some crops taking so much water. I mean, are you developing some seeds that would help with that and that avoid this, such a situation that we would have to tell farmers down the line what crops they can plant? Yeah, certainly our alfalfa and triticale breeding programs are focusing on drought tolerance or more hardiness and lower moisture conditions. We don't have the ability to find the exact genes. If you took a group of alfalfa plants in a field, they're a family. They're not identical to each other. So they're all related. You'd be able to tell they're all related, but we haven't sequenced the alfalfa genome yet. So a lot of our breeding efforts are really from trial and error. Like Gregor Mendel, right? Back many years ago with behind the monastery with peas, right? This is a lot of how we're working our plant breeding and, and triticale and alfalfa. You know, drip technology, it's still very expensive. I don't know if you see that coming down and it, again. I think what we need to do more than anything is find the partners out there. You know, there's some really great technology around drip technology that helps using, like you can, dendrometers around the stalks of corn that can detect like a micromillimeter shrinking of the corn uh, stalk that you then could go, well, okay, that plant is showing stress before it's actually stressed. So a small amount of water will alleviate the stress. 
at the right time, as opposed to just running your irrigation pivot round and round and round for no reason. This helps you better time your water application. So, you know, I think that it's going to be this combination as you, as you asked earlier, you know, this combination of AI and machine learning and other technology with plant breeding, that's going to get us to the right spot. And to your point and to Jay's point that hopefully we don't have to dictate what farmers can grow or not. The situation west of the Rockies is really dire in terms of the water supply. And I've talked to farmers out there that have what is called senior water rights, right? That means that they will get the last drop of water out of the reservoir, but when it's the last drop of the water out of the reservoir, it really doesn't matter anymore, right? If the reservoir is empty, the reservoir is empty. And so you really have accomplished nothing, but it's definitely on the front of everyone's minds when you get west. So Colin, some of these listeners aspire to become a CEO. So you talked a little bit so far, the way I interpret it is you have a lot of will and focus and you knew you wanted to go from an ag science background into an MBA where you came to understand the world of finance and investment, but then you also had further ambition to lead people. And that led to some of your choices to become a CEO. And I, I think one of the lessons in watching your career through the years I've watched it is you're humble. You say that luck is also important. Can you talk about some of your brilliant deputies? Because it, not everyone can be a CEO, but everybody needs to work with some people on their team. So do you want to give us a sense of how you rely on other people in your firm, in, in your decisions? Thanks, Bruce. I appreciate those comments. For me, the hiring of the right people. So since I've been with Legacy Agri Partners, I think I've either now promoted slash hired, you know, four or five out of my eight folks into my leadership team. And, and so, you know, it's, it's decidedly my team, right? You know, and the people that were there that when I arrived, they're also incredibly strong. And I, the, the one thing, you know, one, one of my very first conversations with the, the brand president for Legacy Seeds, Brett McCorkle was, you know, Brett, I'm not here to mow your lawn. Like I, you are, you've, you've got 30 years in the seed business. You know what you're doing. I, I'm here to support. I am here to make sure that the two of us together can be incredibly successful, but you know, I'm not going to be standing over your shoulder every morning and going, okay, what are you doing today? You know, where are we going now? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Like I, I've had, you know, it's really important for me and my style to trust the people that I put around. And then on top of that, you know, when I, when I bring people in and hire them to the team, you know, the biggest thing I can say is, look, I, I, you're here and you are, there's no such thing as this is out of my lane. No. Yes. Yeah, so am I going to, does the CFO need to weigh in on every, you know, ad placement and marketing decision we made? No. And he doesn't want to, but he deserves the opportunity to have a discussion if he, if he so desires and say, wait a minute, you know, have we thought about doing it this way, right? You know, and, and empower the folks on my team to have a voice, no matter the topic, no matter what the situation is, they have a voice. And, and I find that, you know, just the very act of me picking up the phone and, and calling, you know, my operations manager, uh, for the business in Scandinavia, Wisconsin, and asking Lori, Hey, yo, what it, what do you think about if we went after this company in a, in a M&A side of things. And she loves that. She, she loves the fact that her voice is important. Her opinion matters on the, on areas where 
it's outside of operation. Like it's outside of the day-to-day running of a plant or making sure we've got, you know, trucks and fleet vehicles and insurance lined up and all that stuff that's important. But, you know, ask her, Hey, you know, where, where does this M&A sit in terms of the future of this company? And getting her opinion on that is really important to her. It's really important to me. You know, I, you look, if I just surround myself with a few people that, as we all know, right, that just tell me how awesome I am every day, we're, we're not going to get very far. So I, you know, I, I want people to, to challenge our ideas and challenge each other to be better. And then, you know, I think the other part, Bruce, that just for me, as I think about my leadership is, and the best advice I can give almost anyone is just be your authentic self, right? You know, think about who you are and then be that person, right? And it comes more natural for, for me, I'm an extrovert and it comes real natural, but you know, it, my authentic self is where I grew up, where I'm from, who my friends are, you know, the, the people I've surrounded my, with my family, you know, is incredibly important to me. And, and, you know, so anybody who's been around me for more than a couple of days will go, okay, I know he grew up on a farm and I know he's got two boys in hockey in, uh, in Minnesota. And I know his, his wife's an incredibly important partner and part of his life. And, you know, it's, these aren't just made up stories for, for filling time. This is what, this is who I am. And well, and, I think that that helps explain your phrase that I feel in a lot of effective CEOs is they are authentic because they know life is too short to be something that you're not. And so, you know, you're proud of who you are and proud of telling people who you are and how you make decisions with your team. You ha- you can't become more than an analyst and you can't become a key CEO without those attributes. So I think that you've really conveyed the sincerity and authenticity of that. In coming in the close, I, I wonder if you wanted to speak a little bit about your parents, what they taught you about hard work and also how family seems to be a foundation of your life. Yeah. Yo, like I've been talking about how hardworking farmers are obviously, you know, my family, no different than so many other families, right. That grew up on farms, both my parents. So my dad, uh, his father went to world war II, came home and was a mechanic in an auto garage and had a bad accident and broke his back. So he was a paraplegic for the rest of his life. So my dad had that growing up, you know, that, you know, basically you know, his father was in a wheelchair most of his, uh, most of his year or all of his years, except I think, you know, from age five or six onwards, dad then started helping out at the, his uncle's farm, uh, where the homestead farm was for our family going back to 1902, you know, and farming was really important to him. My dad, uh, you know, brought cattle into the farm. He didn't have a high school education at the time. Uh, went back in the late eighties to get, you know, finish off his high school, uh, diploma, which was, you know, something I'm incredibly proud of him for doing. And then he, uh, you know, farming in the late eighties was tough and tough for mom and dad. So, uh, you know, that a lot of the land was borrowed at 18 to 21% interest rates, right? So, you know, the old Volcker years, right? So, uh, incredibly high interest rates. And then when it didn't rain in 88 and 89, you know, that's a problem, right? When you don't have income coming in, uh, and large loan payments and high interest rates to be made was, was a real issue. So we, uh, a lot of the land went back to the bank. We farm, continued to farm about half of it, kept the cows. My mom went back to being a nurse. So she was a nurse when her and dad first met and, you know, a nurse throughout until 
my brother and I were born and then took some time off. And then, so she went back to work, worked incredibly hard to help, you know, make ends meet for everybody. So yeah, it was good. I would say we, you know, while we didn't have a lot, I don't ever remember not having what I wanted. It's like, we always had money to play hockey. We always had time to go while we're at the cattle sales and while we're at the cattle shows, you know, it was fun. Like I, I would never once go, man, my childhood, there was so much missing, right? You know, my parents provided so much for us around every corner, all the opportunities in the world to do what we needed. I paid for my own education as did my brother through student loans and internships and jobs. But my parents also helped at the end of the year, you know, that, that moment around April or May when you're running out of cash and, and, uh, you need that last $1,500 to kind of make it through the school year. You know, my, my mom and dad were always there with a check to help get through the end of the year. So that was always, uh, greatly appreciated as well. But so, you know, while growing up things, like I said, it wasn't like we were off jetting off to Switzerland for summer vacations or anything like that. I have zero regrets about my childhood and the way my parents taught me the value of hard work, the value of community, the value. My dad was on the school board for 30 years, 35 years, chairman of the school board. My mother was, you know, worked at a nursing home, volunteered at the local library, volunteered, helping do the old lady's hair the center and all that stuff. Right. So, you know, it's really, you know, the value of community, the value of family, incredibly important. And so those are lessons learned. Yo, we were taught, look them in the eye. Yo, if they say, you know, hi, call and you say, hi, Mr. Hadland, how are you doing today? Right. It's like automatically right back. Right. you look them in the eye and you ask them how they're doing and those little things, right? Like just the act of looking somebody in the eye, you know, that's my wife and I try to impart that on our boys each and every day, right? <clears throat> Teenage boys do not like making eye contact generally. They are, they're, that's their least favorite thing to do, but our, you know, we're proud of what we've done with our boys. You know, the tough part probably for me uh, is that, you know, I'm one generation, I'm, you know, I'm grew up on a farm. So my kids are one generation removed from that. And it, you know, the reality is we live in suburban Minneapolis, you know, they may as well be 10 generations removed right now. They, they have a strong understanding of agriculture. They have a strong understanding of the farm and my upbringing, my wife's upbringing from her parents who farmed, but you know, it's not the same. It's not quite the same. So we focus, you know, our boys on a lot of those same traits that were really important to my parents and to me and my brother, right? That, you know, again, politeness, community service looking up, you know, respecting your elders, you know, these are hallmark things of small communities, right? When, when my wife and I got that, you know, you have bridal showers, right? The, often the, the bride will have a shower in her honor and a few of her close friends and family will come by. Well, in my hometown, the bridal shower is both for bride and groom and the entire town came out, right? So, you know, it's, it's community. So it's one of those things. As you reflect back over the years, it certainly makes you be real proud of where you're from and the community which you grew up in. So for our, our boys and the way we raise them, you know, look, life isn't easy. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be moments where things don't go according to plan. But the one thing that we never say is, well, that's all I can do. Like we're going to give it all we got. We're, you'll never hear the word that's good enough. 
be uttered in our house, right? There's always more effort. Hearing what Colin's talking about here, about the interconnectedness of communities in small towns and in farming communities especially, is something that I really relate to having grown up on a farm and grown up in a small town. I'm from this tiny town, Falls, Pennsylvania. Our population is fewer than 2,000 people. And my go-to example of when someone asks me, did you grow up in a small town? You know, what was that like? Is uh, that One day I was driving home, it was in the spring and it was my junior year of high school and I was driving home and I was on my road and my road it's like I said I live in a small like sort of really wooded farming town so this little country road and the trees sort of grow over the road it's almost like an archway and so in the springtime when the leaves have just come out and there's the wildflowers it's really pretty so I just you know stopped my car because I just wanted to take a picture just because you know it was sort of the first time it had looked that nice that year and I just wanted to take a picture So I'm pulled over on the side of the road for no more than it takes you to get out of the car and take a picture. So maximum of a minute and a half. And in that minute and a half, one of my neighbors had pulled out of his driveway and was driving down the road and pulled up next to me and was like, oh, hi, Maureen, are you okay? Do you you need help? Do you you need me to call someone? Is your car broke down? Do you need a lift home? And Uh, You know, that's just not something that you get anywhere else. And what Colin's talking about here, you know, his whole town comes to the bridal shower and everyone cares about each other and everyone looks out for each other. I think that that sort of interconnectedness is really intrinsic to farming communities because so much of life when you're a farmer is interconnected. And like the soil and the animals and the farmer and the caretakers, everyone relies on each other. And a sense of community there, I think, is stronger than anywhere else. It's a beautiful message. A lot of the ways in which local farmers benefit their communities and their ecosystems is through special care for their animals and farms. Do you think that the mindfulness and intention that small farmers are able to pay to their animals and practices can be adapted to fit more large-scale operations? Yeah, great question. Wow, that's a lot right there. Short answer is yes, right? I think every... I want to say that most people, most even the large farmers have an incredible desire for the well, welfare of their animals, right? You go out to Garden City, Kansas, to a cattle feedlot of 70,000 cows. Again, that's their lifeblood. So the only way you make money is if cattle are healthy and eating and putting on weight so they can go to slaughter. It's the circle of life, so to speak. So there's a desire for that to happen. I think what we're, again, back to technology and so on, is helping us be better at offering more animal health solution, you know, uh, welfare solutions for even the large farmers. It's been better all along. Right. And a lot of genetically modified characteristics of the produce we consume is beneficial in origin. For example, making foods resilient to disease and more suitable to being transported. But there's a lot of rhetoric focusing on non-GMO products. Uh, Where do you personally find the line between beneficially and detrimentally genetically modified foods? You know, for me, certainly the early stages of genetically modified crops and produce has been focused on making life easier for the farmer. So insect resistance, uh, herbicide resistance, fungal resistances, things like that. The next step is really to make it beneficial for the consumer. And that to me is, you know, so golden rice, right? The rice that helps, you know, with, what is it, vitamin K and it helps provide key nutrients to folks that, that consume rice as the primary staple food of their diet every day is really important. There's a tomato that's been developed with, you know, the pigment from blueberries in it that helps again, you know, give us those important nutrients that we need, uh, that we can get from now a tomato as opposed to blueberries, right? So that to me is that line, you know, at the end of the day, 
we're going to have people that say, I don't want anything genetically modified in my body. Or we're going to have people that don't, don't really care. And I think where I've developed my thinking has been, it's the consumer's decision. And if the consumer wants to decide that way or pay more for their food because they want a certain type in a certain way, then that's their choice. But for me, this line shifts when we can start beneficially helping the consumer of the food, then I think people will be more accepting of genetically modified products. Well, you've certainly helped us understand the complexity of farming today. So thank you, Colin Steen and Legacy AgriPartners for sharing your experiences of hard work, family, and the joy of coaxing life from the soil and your love of the land. Thank you for helping advance and transform the farming industry for a sustainable future and for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and Business and Society. Thanks for having me, Mia. And thanks, Bruce. This interview was conducted by Bruce Piasecki, Mia Funk, and Maureen Knoll. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Maureen Knoll. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Higginbarth.